Welcome to Condensed Matter, condensing recent work in metaphysics and the philosophy of science down to what matters. I'm your host, Sam Kinton Knight. For this episode, I'm joined by Dr. Will Morgan to discuss his paper, Biological Individuality and the Fetus Problem, which is forthcoming in Akentness. Will is a research associate on the Metascience Project at the University of Bristol. So I'll start by giving a brief overview of the paper, and then we can get into some Q&A and discussion. It can be difficult to count biological organisms. So of course, there are easy cases. It's straightforward to count the number of people in the room right now, or the number of sheep in a field, or the number of tomato plants on a windowsill. But the biological world is full of far more difficult cases than these. The Portuguese man of war, for example, resembles a jellyfish, but on close inspection, it turns out to be comprised of various different structures, each of which budded off from the fertilized ovum. Hence, where we might count one Portuguese man of war, some biologists have suggested that we should instead count various distinct organisms making up a colony. And aspen trees seem to be easy enough to count, given what we see of them above the ground. But underground, a forest of aspen trees turns out to be connected by a complex root system. What's more, each tree has the same genome. Even familiar organisms, such as human beings, are actually more complicated than you might think. We each host a vast number of microorganisms, many of which play key roles in our biological processes. Gut bacteria are a good example here. So should we take these microorganisms to be distinct biological units from us, or are they parts of us? Call the problem of counting organisms the problem of biological individuality. Besides being philosophically interesting, the problem of biological individuality is also pressing for evolutionary biology, which is concerned with how many distinct organisms have a particular gene or trait. There are two broad approaches to answering the problem. The physiological approach appeals to processes such as immunological interactions to individuate organisms. An organism is something whose parts are coordinated by some process or processes to work together and maintain the functioning of the whole. And the evolutionary approach appeals to evolution. Biological individuals on this latter view are units of selection, i.e. things that are able to participate in evolution by natural selection. In this paper, Will Morgan argues that the physiological approach faces a problem called the fetus problem. The general idea is that if we accept the physiological approach, it seems that the fetus never becomes the organism that the mother gives birth to. This raises the difficult question, what happens to the fetus? So did that sound okay, Will? Is there anything you'd like to correct or elaborate on? No, I think that sounds great, Sam. Thanks. Um, I think you did a good job. Um, I think one thing I'd maybe add is that I guess in this paper, uh, I'm trying to appeal to metaphysical considerations to consider uh, the debate about biological individuality. And I guess most philosophers of biology don't do this. I guess they're more concerned with uh, things like explanatory power in science or scientific practice. Um, but I did think you did a good job in explaining it. So first of all, then, can you maybe say a bit more about the physiological approach and the evolutionary approach and what these accounts would say about the difficult cases just discussed, such as the Portuguese man of war, the aspen trees and the human and its microorganisms? Sure. So the physiological approach is often thought to be the traditional concept of the organism. And very roughly, as you said, it says that an organism is some sort of functionally integrated whole. 
But this alone isn't very precise. So all sorts of things that aren't organisms seem to be functionally integrated wholes. So such as the crew on a ship or perhaps a community of human beings. So, so most philosophers try and make the physiological approach more precise by appealing to a particular biological field or discipline or process. For instance, it's often understood in terms of the metabolism, where it's said that an organism is said to be a, a self-maintaining whole whose parts work together to maintain the whole by using energy from the environment. So the idea is that unlike robots or other objects like machines, organisms use the material from their environment to sustain themselves and they incorporate this material into their structure. So for, for instance, a carbon atom that I ingest from a sugar cube belongs to the same biological unit as me because I will use it for energy. And a particular bacteria belongs to an aphid as a part because it supplies it with a protein which it will which it would otherwise not have received from its diet. But even this is thought to be too vague by most philosophers of biology. For, for instance, a flame seems to be an example of a self-maintaining whole that persists through the use of energy. So most promisingly, and what I focus on in this paper, some philosophers such as Thomas Prado appeal to immunology and the immune system to make the physiological approach more precise. So according to Prado, an organism is something whose parts are tolerated by a single immune system, or more precisely, an organism is something composed of parts that are connected by strong biochemical interactions and governed by medium intensity immune interactions. So if we hold this view, the immunological view, as Prado says, uh, many marine invertebrate colonies count as a single organism. So I'm not entirely sure what it would say about the Portuguese manual, but according to the immunological view, it would count as an organism if its parts are governed by a single immune system. Uh, but so, but turning to other marine invertebrate colonies, such as uh, star tunicates, uh, which are things composed of smaller living things called zooids, I know that the immunological account would take the entire colony to be a single organism, given that the entire colony, rather than each zooid, has a unique immune system. And Prado also entertains the idea that a colony of bees may well count as a single immune system. So bees in the hive, for instance, uh, have designated waste disposal bees and even sometimes kill infected bees. And uh, if an intruder enters a hive, some bees will, some colonies will raise their temperature simultaneously to kill the intruders. So I'm not sure what the immune system account would say about aspen trees. So in general, it's less clear what counts as an immune system in plants, given that they lack a, a circulatory system. Although I have seen it suggested, at least on an online article, I don't know if it, this is true, that a grove, the grove as a whole has a single immune system. Um, so I can talk about the evolutionary approach as well, if you want. Yeah, let me just maybe jump in while I think of it with a, a quick follow up, if you don't mind. So now I'm a little bit worried about this notion of a single immune system, because it looks like we might have shifted the problem of counting organisms onto the problem of counting immune systems. And is that going to be any easier, do you think? Yeah, thanks. So I, I guess the idea is that the idea is supposed to be that all the parts of an organism are, have, a, have a similar immune response. So the idea is that the immune system will accept certain parts and will reject others. So the idea is meant to be that it's a system of parts that are all tolerated, I guess, uh, by the immune cells of a system. Uh, is that helpful? Yeah, thanks, Will. Yeah, that does help a lot. Um, yeah, feel, feel free to say something about the evolutionary approach if you'd like. Yeah, thanks. So. 
So the idea here is that according to the evolutionary approach, organisms are units of selection. So in other words, they are members of a population where there is variation in traits. There's hereditary. Uh, so parents resemble offspring. And also there's differences in reproductive success. So exactly what this amounts to is up for debate. So some say, for example, that organisms are things composed of cells with the same genome, although this view is not very popular. Um, on, on this view, so if uh, according to this view, uh, if a Portuguese man of war has parts that all have the same genome, then the Portuguese man of war would count as a single organism. Uh, in contrast, Godfrey Smith, he says that an organism from an evolutionary perspective, which he calls Darwinian individuals, are reproducing entities that have three main features. So they have a bottleneck life cycle. So they start as a single cell uh, before ballooning up into a multicellular organism. They also have germ soma separation. So they have a distinction between sex cells and non-sex bodily cells. And there's also a mutual dependence of parts. So I think according to this view, the Portuguese man of war would, would count as a single organism because it does have reproductive specialization. Its parts are dependent on each other. And I think it has a bottleneck life cycle. And with a colony of bees, I think this would also count as an organism, at least maybe to some degree. So for instance, uh, the in colonies, the worker bees are sterile while the queen reproduces. So this is similar to how our own bodies have a distinction between sex cells and non-sex cells. Thanks very much, Rob. That was great. That was that was really helpful to have that kind of background to this debate. Um, I suppose we should remember that you're primarily interested in the physiological approach, though. So, so let's get into the the questions about your argument as it concerns this physiological approach. The first step in your argument involves the claim that, according to the physiological approach, a fetus is a part of its mother. So now I wonder, what's the relevance of parthood to the question of biological individuality? And why does the physiological approach imply that a fetus is a part of its mother? So, so while accounts of biological individuality aim to provide criteria for determining how to count organisms, they also aim to provide criteria for determining when something counts as a part of an organism too. So the idea is once we know what an organism is, we can know what it takes for something to be a part of an organism. And this is most easily seen with the physiological approach, such as Thomas Prado's immunological account. So recall that according to the immunological account, an organism is something composed of parts that are interconnected by strong biochemical interactions and medium intensity immune interactions. So to make things easier, we can just say that according to this view, an, org an organism is something composed of parts that are immunologically related. So it follows from this account then that something is a part of an organism if it's immunologically related to the rest of the organism. So that is if it's interconnected to the organism via strong biochemical interactions and medium intensity immune interactions. And many philosophers take this to mean that a fetus therefore is a part of its mother, given that a fetus interacts with and is tolerated by uh, the, the mother's immune system in most cases. And this is also true of many bacteria inside of a multicellular organism. Uh, so at least in human beings, we have gut bacteria that play a very important role in the functioning of our immune system. They're also tolerated by an immune system, and they might even be thought as, as, as parts of the immune system. Um, so yeah, I, I hope that makes it clear. Yeah, amazing. Thank you, Paul. That, that's very clear. So the next, next question on the details of your argument, the exclusion principle that you discuss says that organisms can't have other organisms as parts. 
And so then as you discuss and just mentioned then, since the physiological approach implies that a fetus is a part of the mother, it follows that the fetus is not an organism during pregnancy. I guess now I'm wondering, so does the physiological approach also imply that gut bacteria aren't organisms? And if so, is this problematic, do you think? I think that's right. So if the exclusion principle accepted is accepted, then yes, uh, gut bacteria in many cases, which are immunologically tolerated by the, the host organism, would be parts of the host. And so if we accept the exclusion principle, they would be ruled out from being organisms. So I think this, this leads to some of the same worries that arise when fetuses, uh, with fetuses, which we can discuss in more detail later. Um, but for instance, suppose that gut bacteria leave a host, leaves a host. Since it would no longer be part of a host and presumably have some sort of immune system, it would presumably be an organism. But assuming that organism is a substance or tool, which many philosophers think is the case, then non-organisms cannot become organisms. That is, if that is it because if an organism is a substance or tool, then organisms are permanently organisms. So it belongs to the identity of an organism, that it will always be an organism and always uh, always was an organism. So given this, the bacterial organism that exists outside of the host is not the same thing as the bacteria non-organism that was inside the host. So then we can ask the following question. Well, what happened to the bacteria that was inside the host? So where did they go? And also suppose that the bacterial organism, which is now outside of the host, enters a new host and forms a relationship with that, therefore ceasing to be an organism. So this would result, I think, in the bacteria ceasing to exist. And this would mean then that if a bacteria leaves the host and enters a new host, despite appearances, they're actually three distinct beings rather than one. So there's a non-bacterial organism that was first inside a host. There's then a bacterial organism that's not, not yet entered a new host. And then there'd be a bacterial organ, organism inside the new host. So where we thought there was actually one organism, there seems now there's actually three distinct things, if that makes sense. Yeah, it does, Will. Thanks very much. That's really great. And it's nice to see how... Um, your arguments in this paper are probably quite broad. They don't just apply to fetuses. Um, yeah, fascinating. Thanks. Um, but we'll, we'll carry on and, and get into more of the details about how this how this all applies to to fetuses. So, I mean, so still on this this kind of topic of the exclusion principle that we were just discussing. Contrary to this exclusion principle, you mention in the paper Peter Godfrey Smith, who maintains that things can be organisms to lesser or greater degrees. So we might think that gut bacteria are organisms to a lesser degree than their human host or something like that. And we might think that a fetus must develop beyond a certain point in order to count as an organism to any degree. Um, so then I just wondered what you thought about this idea and in particular how plausible it is that the concept organism might admit of degrees in this way. And could this maybe lead to problems with counting organisms of a different kind? Thanks. So, yeah, I, I think it definitely sounds weird to say that being an organism comes in degrees. So just as it sounds just as it sounds weird to say that being a table comes in degrees, um, it seems it's wrong to say that a table is one table can be less of a table than another table. Then surely you might think it's wrong to say that an organism could be less of an organism than another organism. So I'm at least tempted to say that either something's an organism or it's not. And the degrees view is certainly problematic on some metaphysical views. So suppose that you're Peter van Inwagen and you think that the only composite objects are organisms. So if you hold this view, then you have to say that if a thing is not an organism, then it doesn't exist. So if this is right, and 
organisms come in degrees, then it suggests that we have to say that being a composite object more generally admits of degrees. And I think this is incoherent. So, you know, how can one composite thing be less of a composite thing than another thing? It seems to me that either something is an object with parts or it's not. But perhaps perhaps the idea of organisms coming in degrees seems more plausible if we see it in, in this way. So if we accept the physiological approach, then an organism is some sort of functionally integrated whole with functionally integrated parts. And it seems plausible at least that the parts of some things like a single bee are going to be more unified than the parts of other things like the entire colony. So we might say that the individual bee is more organism-like than the entire colony in the sense that its parts are just more unified than the colony. So it's, it's in this sort of innocent sense that one organism is less of an organism than another. But I think if I'm going to say what I think, I'd probably say that being an organism is not something that comes in degrees. And this doesn't mean that some organisms are not more cohesive than others. It just means that once you're an organism, uh, you're just an organism like any other organism and you're, you're just organisms. Um, there's no such thing as degrees of organisms, if that makes sense. But I, I mean, it is worth pointing out that this degrees of organismality view is quite popular among philosophers of biology. So I think they mostly just tend to find it quite obvious. Thanks. Well, yeah, great. I mean, I think... I'd be inclined to agree with you. Do, do you think that the degrees view might be more more popular among um, among biologists, as you said, but but less popular among the more metaphysics inclined philosophers? Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm not sure about may, maybe the more metaphysically inclined philosophers. So maybe those who have entertained ideas like Van Eenwagen's view. I also think the degrees view just does sound strange when you sort of consider some cases. So consider people with autoimmune disease. I mean, I don't know if this is right, but you might think that if you hold the immunological view and you take organisms to come in degrees, then you might have to say that people with autoimmune disease are uh, organisms to a lesser degree than those who don't have autoimmune disease. And that seems weird and wrong to me. Um, yeah, I don't know what you think about that. That's a really cool example. Yeah, right, right. So the idea being that the immune system in virtue of which we would be counting the thing as an organism is kind of like turning back on the thing that is the organism and so not cooperating in a way that we would like to yeah think that would have to be the case for the thing to be an organism or something along those lines right yeah right and i don't know if that'll be persuasive to philosophers of biology or metaphysicians i mean they might just say it might seem weird in everyday life than you know if to say that organisms are you know, people with autoimmune disease are organisms to a lesser degree than other organisms. But I mean, maybe they'll say, well, that doesn't have any ethical implications or moral implications. It's just a metaphysical facts. I'd also say about the, I think it's right that if organisms come in degrees and counting organisms would be a lot harder. I mean, I guess you'd have to decide what threshold of being an organism you need before you, you know, in order to count organisms. So presumably you don't want to count organisms to any degree. You might think we should only count them to a certain degree. And I guess it seems any answer to that question might be a bit arbitrary. Yeah, I think that's something along those lines is what I had in mind with that question. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so, so whether one accepts the exclusion principle or the idea that being an organism admits degrees, the physiological approach implies that there is a stage of pregnancy at which the fetus is not an organism. This seems to be the important point. 
You argue that it follows from this via the permanence principle, which perhaps you can say some more about, that the fetus, that, that a fetus never becomes an organism. So could you maybe just tell us a bit more about why this is the case and why it's problematic? Yeah, thanks. So, so the idea, I guess, is this. Uh, regardless of whether we accept the exclusion principle or allow that being an organism comes in degrees, if we accept the physiological approach, then we have to hold that a fetus or at least an early fetus is not an organism. So if we accept the exclusion principle, this is because a fetus is a part of its mother. And assuming that the mother is an organism, this means that the fetus would not be an organism. Alternatively, if we allow that the parts of organisms can be organisms, if we accept the physiological approach, we'd have to nonetheless, nonetheless have to hold that there is a stage of pregnancy where a fetus is not an organism to any degree. Um, so in the paper, I'm understanding the physiological approach immunologically. And since a very early fetus does not have a proper functioning immune system, it seems to me it would not count as an organism to any degree. So where exactly this point is, is unclear, but I think it probably would not be until the organism is at least a couple of months into the gestational period. So given that many immune cells are still immature before this and the lymphatic system, which transports immune cells throughout the body is still immature as well. So that's the first stage. And, and then the argument kind of goes like this. So either a fetus is not an organism during the whole of pregnancy, or at least there's a stage of pregnancy where a fetus is not an organism to any degree. Well, why think then that if a fetus or an early fetus is not an organism, then it never becomes an organism. So that's the important step. And I think we, we briefly touched on this already, but the idea is that the majority of, philo of philosophers, or at least a number of philosophers who accept the physiological approach, accept what I call the permanence principle. So this is the idea that organisms cannot be organisms temporarily. So we might say that organisms are substance sortal rather than phase sortal. So it's more like, uh, it's not like being a school child. So whilst I was once a school child, I'm no longer one. And I won't cease to exist if I stop becoming a school child. But many people think that organisms not like this. So if you stop being an organism, you would cease to exist. And you always have to be an organism too. So you might think that being an organism is part of your identity. And if this is all right, which is admittedly debatable, then if fetuses aren't organisms, then they never become organisms. And this is where the heart of the fetus problem lies, because it raises the following question. So if a fetus never becomes an organism, then we can ask, well, what happens to it? So whatever happens to it, it doesn't become the later organism. And in the rest of the paper, I survey, survey two options for what happens to it. And I take these both to be problematic. Okay, so you seem committed for the purpose of this paper, at least, to the idea that a fetus is numerically identical with a later infant organism. Um, but I was just wondering why we should think this. I suppose it doesn't seem completely obvious to me that a toddler is numerically identical with a fetus, particularly if it's a very early stage fetus that we're talking about. So why not just think that the person that the toddler is only comes into existence at some later stage, perhaps after birth, when they've accrued various memories and other psychological traits, for example? So so I think the, the worry is this, which is kind of sort of leads on to the next stage of the argument. So, so if the fetus is not identical to the later infant organism, then this rate lays, raises the, the question of what happens to it. And as I say in the paper, there's, there's two options. And I take both of these to be somewhat problematic. The first option is that the fetus ceases to exist and at birth is replaced by another thing, the baby, or more specifically, the matter that once composed the fetus ceases to compose the fetus and comes to compose a new numerically distinct thing. 
the organism. So why I think this is problematic, why not think, for instance, that uh, the the fetus ceases to exist and then when mental capacities emerge, uh, the later thing, the baby, comes into existence. And I think this is problematic for a few reasons. So, for example, Eric Olson says that, you know, why should we think that acquiring mental capacities could cause you to cease to exist? So usually we think that a thing ceases to exist when it loses certain capacities, not when it gains them, for example, when it gains mental capacities. And also note that the fetus problem is supposed to apply to non-human mammalian pregnancy too. Uh, so in cases where there might not be any mental capacities after birth anyway. And, and this would similarly be surprising if the fetus ceased to exist, because it seems surprising that a fetus would cease to exist when it gains biological complexity, for example, when it gains a more mature immune system, so we usually think that something ceases to exist when it loses its biological capacities or it decays. It seems a bit more surprising to say that when the fetus gains immunological complexity and is no longer governed by its mother's immune system, it would cause it to cease to exist. So that's the, the, the idea of the argument anyway. There's a second stage, but maybe we can talk about that a bit later. A second option, we, we can talk about that a bit later if you want as well. Yeah, maybe I'll just jump in there and because I can't resist or doing a typical philosopher's counterexample type thing to your point. So the thing about it seems strange to say that something can go out of existence by by gaining matter or something like that. Uh, I don't know. What if you had something like a a clay statue and then you just kind of um, uh, stuck a load more clay to that statue? It kind of looks like that might be a case in which the statue ceases to exist as a result of gaining more stuff. Um, and, and maybe there could be other examples. So how? How um, convinced are you by this kind of principle? Yeah, that's that's quite tricky, actually. I haven't really thought of that example. I, I'm not sure if this is right, but I'd be tempted to say that because we're talking about artefacts, it's different. I I don't know if that's right or not, but... Yeah, no, no, fair enough. I mean, like I said, I just couldn't resist trying to come up with some sort of counter. Yeah, but, but no, that's a, that's a good counterexample. I'd have to think about that. I mean, I guess the question would be why why is it different with art, artifacts compared to living things? And that, that's not entirely obvious, but yeah, it's a good point. No, but I do feel that the intuitive pull, um, right? Okay, so yeah, maybe I'll just move on to the the next question, and then if if at any point you want to come back to other stuff, just let me know. But um, so, so in that in that last um, point that you were making there, this, this option of um, the fetus ceasing to exist after birth uh, was kind of floated, and yeah, maybe it's implausible for, for various reasons. But you also suggest that it might have um, a sad implication, right? That the fetus is destroyed at birth, and perhaps this is sad because the mother doesn't ever get to hold the being that spent nine months in her womb. And I wondered now, like, like again, I, I do feel some of the pull of this, but then on the other hand, I think that perhaps this is. This kind of point is to just kind of misunderstand what what metaphysics is doing, and so I guess I wonder: can an abstract metaphysical result re- really ever be be sad in this way, um, or even have any ethical implications? So, so can you say a bit more about how you think metaphysics might interact with our psychology and and maybe ethics? Yeah, thanks, Sam. I mean, I think ultimately with the sad comment, I was just trying to be a bit provocative, so. I don't ultimately think that just because metaphysical implications sad, this would be a reason alone to not hold it. So obviously it just might be the case that the world just is a very sad place. Um, and But I think a better argument here would be, although it's not the strongest argument, would be that 
Many people would people would just find it surprising and implausible to hold that the fetus is a distinct thing from the later baby. Uh, so usually, as I said earlier, usually we think that something ceases to exist by decaying not or losing biological capacities, not by gaining them. I think that's a slightly stronger argument. I don't think the the argument I made about it being sad is particularly a convincing one at all, to be honest. I think it was just, I was just trying to be provocative. Uh, provocative. Yeah, no, f- fair enough. But, but do you, but do you think that, so whether or not it has any implications for, for the argument, do you not, do you think that metaphysical results really could be sad? So before you said, you know, maybe, maybe the metaphysical fact of the matter just is that the world is a sad place, but I guess it's that, it's that, that I'm su- surprised by as much as anything that, that a metaphysical result could be anything but kind of neutral <laughs> with respect to um ethics and stuff like that yeah i mean just thinking about that i mean you might say i mean suppose myriological nihilism is true and there are no human beings i mean i don't know if so according to myriological nihilism uh things never compose an additional thing and that would imply that there's no organisms or tables and chairs and i don't know if that would be sad it it would certainly be very hard to live with i think just trying to i know there's all these paraphrases we could you know there's a paraphrase like you know no organisms but those particles arranged organism wise yeah um but i guess the question is if we could actually you know is is that the is that a view that you could actually entertain could we actually believe that there aren't any people i mean maybe that would just be too hard and too demanding to believe maybe i think Eric Olson says somewhere that perhaps believing in nihilism would lead to madness. Um, he just says maybe, maybe it's just something that we just could not entertain. It's just so difficult to understand. Um, in terms of your question about whether metaphysics is can have any relation to ethics, um, I think I mean that's that's a really difficult question, um, and obviously I I don't think that you can read off ethical implications just for metaphysical views. So it's, I think it's going to require to do a lot of metaphysics and maybe metaethics to do this, metaethics to do this. Mm-hmm. So, but here's one case where you might think metaphysics is relevant for ethics. So suppose you accept the physiological approach and the exclusion principle, and then you hold that, which, which implies that a fetus is not an organism. Then if there are rights that are, say, reserved for organisms or human organisms, then these rights just won't apply to fetuses. So similarly, if you you think that one has autonomy over their parts and a fetus is part of its mother, then this would mean that a mother has autonomy over her fetus. I mean, whether these ethical claims are right or not is controversial. And as I say, I don't think the ethics could be read off the metaphysics, but I think it should somewhat demonstrate how metaphysics might thought be thought to be relevant to ethics thanks well yeah that's really fascinating yeah i I think another example in this vicinity that i've heard people suggest is that you know maybe an eternalist metaphysics of time could make you feel less worried about the prospect of of death if you kind of (laughs) exist timelessly at some some position in space-time even after you're you're dead sort of thing um but yeah no right yeah um yeah i mean i don't know what you think about so i mean if nihilism is true i mean would you say that there's no such thing as human rights i mean i'll be tempted to say no we just have to understand human rights in terms of lots of particles arranged organism-wise or something i don't know right 
particles arranged organism Lee writes or something like that, right? <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. Um, no, great. That's that's really fascinating. Thanks for that, Will. Um, so just again, moving on to one of the details of your argument, and I think this is going to be clarificatory and, and helpful for me. Another option you discussed is that when an organism comes to exist at birth, the fetus continues to exist but shares all of its matter with the organism. So then after birth, we have two beings where we thought we had one, an organism and an ex-fetus, which are co-located. And so I guess I just wondered, and again, I think this is clarificatory, why do you call one of these things an ex-fetus if the fetus continues to exist? Um, why is it not still just a fetus on this option? And more importantly, what's wrong with this response, do you think? Yeah, thanks, Sam. This is quite a... I think it's quite a confusing response. So I'll try and spend a bit of time spelling it out and also explaining what I mean by ex fetus. So, so the idea here is that according to this option, non-identical thing can be made of the same matter. So for instance, if it's often said that a statue and a lump of clay it's made of are distinct objects, uh, but one of them is made of the other. So the statue is made of the lump. And so you might, for instance, you might think this is the case because you might think, well, the lump of clay came into existence before it was molded into a statue. So the terminology often says that the statue is constituted, constituted by the clay. And similarly, we might say that, that at birth, the, the fetus continues to exist, but also another thing comes into existence. So the physiological whole or the organism, which shares all of its matter with the thing that was once a fetus, although it's distinct from the fetus. And by, by ex fetus, I, I just mean the thing that was that is no longer lo located inside the womb. And has now matured and matured and developed. So just as we were children, children, we're now ex-children. Uh, and in that same way, the thing that was once a fetus is now no longer a fetus, but it's some some other kind of thing, if that makes sense. Yeah, it does, Will. Thanks. And I guess the main problem with this response is that it actually seems to suggest that the physiological approach is false. And this is because most people think that there can't be two co-located objects of the same kinds. So this would mean that the thing that was once a fetus would not be an organism. And it also follows from the permanence principle that the thing that was once a fetus would not be an organism. But despite this, the thing that was once an organism is entirely co-located with an organism, right? And it's physically indistinguishable from an organism. So in particular, like the organism, it would be a physiological whole, but unlike the organism, it, it would not be an organism. So it would therefore be a physiological whole, but but without being an organism. But the physiological approach precisely precisely tells us that to be an organism just is to be a physiological whole. The co-location response then implies that there are physiological wholes that are not organisms. And so it implies that the physiological approach is false. Thanks for that, Will. Okay, so then getting to the, the business end of things, what, what do you think the most promising line of response to the fetus problem is going to be? So I think, as I, as I say in the paper, I think the most plausible response is to adopt pluralism about biological individuality. So this is the view that uh, the physiological approach and the evolutionary approach, are they're both true because they identify or pick out different kinds of biological individuals. So, so the idea is that the physiological approach is about physiological individuals, whilst the evolutionary approach is about evolutionary individuals. So individuals that are units of selection. So to see this contrast, you might think that viruses are 
they're not physiological individuals because they lack a metabolism, but they are nonetheless evolutionary individuals because they can produce, reproduce and participate in natural selection. So, so how does pluralism allow us to respond to defeat this problem? Well, consider that it seems plausible that nothing could be both a physiological individual and an evolutionary individual. And this is because these individuals have different parts, or at least the conditions for being a part of each individual is different. So as we saw, whether something is a part of a physiological individual is to do with whether that thing is physically integrated with the whole. Although if something is a part of an evolutionary individual, this, this would be to do with something like whether that thing, along with the rest of the individual, respond to natural selection as a single unit. So consider then that, as we've seen, uh, gut bacteria, they're parts of a human being if it's a physiological individual, but they would not be parts of a human being if uh, the human being is an evolutionary individual because the gut bacteria and the human being respond to selection uh, separately. So, and because of this, pluralism then seems to have the following metaphysical implication. So where we ordinarily thought there was a single human being there are actually two distinct beings. So there's a physiological individual and an evolutionary individual. And these are going to have much of their matter in common, but not all of it. So for instance, gut bacteria. And this allows us to respond to the fetus problem in the following way. So we can say that a fetus is an evolutionary individual in virtue of having the capacity to respond to natural selection. But at birth, or shortly before birth, when a suitably mature immune system develops, a physiological individual comes into existence, coming to share much of its matter with the evolutionary individual. So the fetus problem is avoided because we need not say that when an organism comes into existence, a fetus ceases to exist or that it, it becomes entirely co-located with an organism. We just have to say that something comes into existence that shares some of its matter uh, with, the, with the fetus. But pluralism does have its own issues. So assuming that we are biological individuals, it implies that we can never know which individual we are. So in particular, we can never know whether we are, whether we are physiological individuals or evolutionary individuals. Um, so, and this is because they share much of their matter in common. They seem to share a nervous system and a brain. So they would seem to have the same thoughts, do many of the same activities. And I think this is worrying because one reason for caring about the problem of biological individuality in the first place is because Ideally, an answer to it would tell us about what sort of thing we are. But if pluralism is true, many questions about ourselves, in particular, which thing we are, are going to have no obvious answer, or it's going to be impossible to know the answer to this. And because these different individuals has, have different parts, different part conditions, this means that loads of other questions about ourselves are going to be unanswerable too. So we can never know what it is for something to be a part of us. And I think at least this seems quite surprising and worrying to me. So pluralism seems like a good response. It's also very popular among philosophers of biology, but I think it does have these metaphysical implications that are quite worrying. It's just a really interesting situation you've got there at the end because it's like, you know, certain, I guess, uh, theoretical considerations are pulling you yeah, in one direction towards this pluralism, but then you've got these epistemological worries that come with that. And so it's, it's difficult to know how to, how to weigh these <laughs> drawbacks and benefits. But yeah, no, very interesting. Thank you, Will. Um, so finally, and to kind of go a bit broader and maybe come back to something we touched on at the beginning. So part of your sales pitch for this paper is that it brings metaphysics to bear on the philosophy of biology. So I was just wondering if you could maybe tell us a little bit more about what philosophers of biology who are not engaged in metaphysical issues in the way that you are, are doing, and what you think might be improved, very broadly speaking, by doing more metaphysics of biology. 
Yeah, thanks, Sam. That's I think that's a really hard question. And I mean, part of the problem is you might just think that philosophers of biology involved in this debate about individuality are kind of already doing metaphysics. I mean, it sounds like they're talking or you know, talking about the nature of organisms, but it sounds like a metaphysical question. But I think at least that most philosophers of biology involved in this debate are interested in trying to do work that is useful for work in biology. So one of one of the main reasons for caring about the problem of biological individuality is because being able to count and distinguish organisms seems important for biological practice. For example, in order to measure the, the spread of a trait in a population, biologists need to know how many organisms have a particular trait. So it seems like you know, the question of how to count organisms seems like it's a pressing question for actually doing biology. And I mean, more generally, philosophers of biology seems to take explanatory power or usefulness for biology to be important when choosing the right account of individuality. And this is why pluralism is probably the most popular view. So the idea is that look, these different accounts of individuality are useful for different biological goals. So if you're interested in evolutionary biology, you're going to care about the evolutionary approach because it's going to be useful for thinking about which things respond to natural selection as a single unit. So you're going to count those things as composing a single thing. But if you care more about, say, immunological interactions, you're going to want to put all the things that respond to or are governed by the single immune system as sort of sticking together as a single unit. But I guess this leads to the difficult question of why we should think that when an account is useful, this is a guide to you know, the metaphysics, a guide to how things really are. So, I mean, I guess one worry you might have is, look, something could just be useful and false. You might think an account of individuality is useful for, you know, thinking about counting an evolutionary biology, but maybe that's all it is. It's just useful and maybe it's false. But I guess one option is to take usefulness to be a guide to how the world really is. You might think, look, if if an approach to individuality allows us to make predictions in evolutionary biology, then this is a guide, this is a reason for taking that account to be true, right? Uh, but I ultimately, I think this question is, is clear. It's, it's a very difficult question. I think uh, we need to do some meta-metaphysics to work out what is going on in the philosophy of biology and you know what criteria we should use when considering which account to accept. I guess sort of more importantly, I guess maybe in this paper, I think metaphysics is important for drawing out underlying assumptions or implications of the views in the philosophy of biology and can help us see where particular views might be problematic from a metaphysical, metaphysical perspective. So this is what I've tried to do in the paper, right? I've argued that if we really consider the implications of the physiological approach, then this has problematic implications about early mammalian development and maybe even personal identity. And assuming that philosophers of biology are concerned with how the world is, as are metaphysicians, I don't think these metaphysical implications can be ignored, if that makes sense. So maybe another way of, I wonder if you, how, what you think about this way of characterising the less metaphysically inclined philosophers of biology, that you know they'll have their account of individuality that works for them, but, but they won't be too concerned with um, you know a philosopher coming along and pointing out to them some counterintuitive implications of their view or more broadly perhaps they're not too concerned of you know what's sort of deductively quite far downstream of their account right so you've you've presented quite a complex argument here which um metaphysicians find interesting but the philosophers of biology might just say yeah i don't care let's not do too many dedu deductive steps on what i believe you know as long as it works that's all that matters is that a way of putting it do you think or yeah i mean i, I yeah i guess the danger with that is i mean it, it certainly seems like 
philosophers of biology are trying to tell us what organisms are like we might say really like and if you know as a metaphysician you come along and go well, look there's this metaphysical problem that we can't just ignore it because it's a problem for what the world is like so if the philosopher of biology goes oh well i don't care about that i mean i think they have to say why they don't care about that and maybe one reason is that they just don't care about metaphysics at all that seems really strong um, but then if that's true, if they really don't care about metaphysics at all, then I guess we can't really be, they can't really be asking about the nature of organisms, but more about what's the most useful way to think about organisms for doing biology. And I imagine there'll be a bit of pushback about that. I mean, it seems like, I think philosophers of biology think they are trying to tell us about what the world is really like. Um, so I think at the moment, I think they should engage in these metaphysical uh, you know, they they should take note of these metaphysical implications because it seems like they're trying to tell us something about the world, what the world is like, as are metaphysicians. Yeah, amazing. Yeah, very interesting. Thank you, Will. So, finally, is there anything else you'd like to add? I, I don't think so. I think, yeah, I think you've covered most of it, really. I mean, I guess, I guess, I just hope that there'll be more interaction between metaphysicians and philosophers of biology in the future. Uh, that's that's my goal, anyway. <laughs> Brilliant. Yeah. Well, hopefully, you will have helped to forward that goal. Great. Thanks so much, Will. No, thanks for having me. It's been great. Thanks for listening to Condensed Matter. Please rate and review the show on your favourite app so that more people can find it. There's also a link to the show's Patreon page in the episode notes. Your support will help towards the costs associated with hosting and production and will lead to improvements in your future listening experience. Patrons of the show will also get the chance to suggest articles and guests for future episodes. 